welcome to the unofficial Unreal Engine podcast, where we talk about all things Unreal and also Solid Air. We're your hosts. My name is Alex, and this is Jacob. Uh, it's great to have you guys back listening, watching the podcast. Make sure you subscribe, like, comment, whatever it is, wherever you're watching, listening. We really appreciate it. And we got a special episode for you guys today. Mm. We got a special guest, and we're going to start it off by just firing off a few questions, Eugene, and then sure. we'll let you uh, uh, introduce yourself uh, properly. <laughs> properly, right, right, right. Uh, so what we're going to do is I'm going to give you a few word associations. I'm just going to say one word. And I want to get the first word that pops into your head after I say it. And there's there's no right answers here, and it doesn't have to be Unreal Engine specific. All right. Okay. Sounds so uh, first word, home. Park City. All right. Work. <laughs> Penrose. Food. Yes, please. <laughs> Travel. Also, yes, please. Yeah. Drink. Sure. <laughs> Virtual production. I think it's the future. And last but not least, Unreal Engine. Amazing tool. Nice. Okay. And then a few extra questions here. How do you take your coffee, Eugene? Black. Ooh, it's espresso. You go for drip. You're <laughs> like Chemex or, you know. Yeah, I, I bounce between a Chemex and an AeroPress. Uh, so actually today I had an AeroPress and a Chemex. So, yeah. you know, all of our guests so far have been espresso people. So, and I'm with you. I'm with you on the uh, on, uh, uh, Chemex and AeroPress. That's awesome. All right. You Favorite time of the day. My wife has the espresso machine. So she bounces between the AeroPress. Ah, okay. okay. And the, she bounces between <laughs> the AeroPress and the espresso. Uh, and then when we travel, of course, we can only really take the AeroPress with us. So. Oh, but you take the AeroPress with you. It's yeah, tiny. My, yeah, oh, and my own and I actually have a grinder that fits specifically inside the AeroPress. So there's like two grinders in the world, I think, that at least popular ones that fit in there. So yeah, makes it. This is this is the level of, of coffee nerd dumb that I love. All right, all right, awesome. Okay, favorite time of the day. You know, I think it depends on the day. I don't have a specific favorite time. I mean, you know, right in the mornings, early in the mornings are good. Um, I wake like up. Are you one of those people who can wake up at like 4 a.m. and jump right into the day? You know, I'm typically, I, I typically just kind of wake up when, you know, I, I think a good, getting in a good cycle is good. But, you know, when I used to live in San Francisco, I'd say the, um, you know, I love, I love the cold mornings and I didn't like the cold evenings. That's sort of that was my feelings about. That's a, that's a Very good poetic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And then wh when was the last time you had a really good laugh? You know, like what was the joke? Or situation, or situation, or situation. Hmm. I. That's a great question. I. I. Um, I don't. Oh, you know what? I was reading Don Quixote recently, and it's a hilarious <laughs> book. Really <laughs> funny. I just, yeah, I was kind of reading, and my laughing out loud in bed, and my my wife was like, uh, "What are you laughing at?" Right? <laughs> Looking at my yeah. Kindle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Don Quixote. Don Quixote. Wow, that's that's a unique answer. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Eugene. Thank you. Uh, here's a chance to introduce yourself and, and let our viewers, listeners know a little bit about what you're doing, what you're up to. 
Absolutely. Thanks, Jacob. So yeah, my name is Eugene, and I am an artist, a filmmaker, uh, both in the traditional sense, but of course, more recently in uh, virtual reality. Um, I think probably my, my background goes all the way back to my parents. So my mom is a, a accountant, and my dad is an opera singer. So I've always had this duality between, you know, left brain and right brain uh, throughout pretty much my entire career. So, you know, I've done everything from had more analytical careers, I was, you know, an investor and, you know, worked on worked in finance, uh, all the way over to more, the more creative side. So growing up, I was very much into theater, I guess, you know, probably no surprise given my, my father's an opera singer and I saw him, you know, on stage, uh, the only difference is I can't sing and he can. So, you know, like I had to sublimate my, you know, my, my interests and, in, and, in, and in sort of the theater. So that was actually like really my first, uh, my first, um, you know, really foray into things. So I took like, you know, IB theater and all that stuff, you know, really nerdy stuff and did a lot of, you know, read a lot of plays and saw a lot of plays when I was a kid. Um, but then, uh, you know, I, I realized growing up, I had to get got a real job. So I ended up going to, um, you know, work in finance for a while, ended up being an investor and doing all those things. But, uh, you know, at some point I, I realized that, you know, that, um, I, you know, at some point I realized that there was this sort of, you know, desire to really fulfill that creative passion that I had when I was uh, much younger. So even when I was at working as an investor full-time, you know, in New York city as a young, you know, private equity analyst, uh, ended up making a, a documentary film, you know, on kind of my free, I guess, I don't know if free time existed, but you know, on the free time, uh, you know, made a documentary film. And that was like kind of the first foray back into what I think was kind of like the roots of my, uh, you know, of my career. So I was director producer of that film. Uh, then, um, you know, at some point kind of down the line, you know, I was, I was in business school, uh, and, the founder of Pixar came at Camel. And that was kind of like, you know, I, I, I rushed to go see him at the end of his talk, he was presenting a case and, uh, you know, he, he invited me to come in and, and say hi to him in, in Emeryville. And that was kind of the, the way that I kind of found my way back to film or rather into, you know, animation. So, you know, I did an internship there, you know, wonderful, wonderful place to be. And I learned a lot from some really creative people. Um, but yeah, after that, uh, you know, joined uh, at some point, you know, I'm skipping over a lot of things, but, you know, joined Oculus, uh, you know, in the early days, uh, was lucky to create something there called Oculus Story Studio, where we made some, you know, early films and, 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 you know, early, uh, VR experiences, so to speak. Um, you know, we were having a lot of fun making some, making some cool stuff, but, you know, we got acquired by this, you know, little company called Facebook. I mean, our, you know, our company and, uh, you know, that cha really changed the nature of the entire, I think, virtual reality, um, industry. It, it really kind of, you know, was a, was a big marker for, you know, a lot of people, including myself. Um, but I know many people in the industry, that was one, one of the big events that really helped kickstart and, and really supercharge this, this phase of VR. Um, so my current company Penrose, um, you know, we are lucky to have made several experiences. You know, those experiences include the Rose and I, uh, Alamette, Arden's Wake, um, you know, and I've been writer and director, uh, for those experiences. And, uh, yeah, it's been just kind of a thrill to be able to learn and grow in this new medium and, uh, you know, kind of focus on our mission, which is to empower the pursuit of meaning. Wow. That was a, a very, concise and an excellent summary of your background Eugene thank you for doing that sure. um so much interesting so so much interesting stuff in there uh mm -hmm. to chat about but I, I'd love to hear what the epiphany was that at one point drove you out of I mean I, I understand that you know Ed Catmull shows up and yeah. <laughs> that's a cool guy and he's like oh I think you should come work at Pixar maybe but yeah. what, what was the the moment where you convinced yourself, hey, I don't know if this finance thing is, is for me. Mm -hmm. I want to jump into X, Y, Z, you know, whatever. 
Yeah. You know, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think everything we do in life kind of, you know, stays with us. So, I mean, I would say there's a lot of my job now that actually involves finance, right? Like, or rather <laughs> things I learned in, in finance. Uh, in fact, maybe more so on a day-to-day basis than, than, you know, the, the things I learned in, you know, in film school and, and, and in theater, um, you know, studying theater. Um, yeah, you know, I, I used to have a different answer, I think, or a different perspective on, on that question. But I think like, you know, we are, you know, it's like, I guess in our heads, we, we define like what we are, right? Like we define, Hey, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, whatever, um, you know, professor at a, at a law school, right. Or I'm, I'm this, or I'm that. And I think that that's one way to think about it. Right. And a lot of people do define themselves that way, but I don't really think I, I define myself in that way from a practical perspective, right? Meaning like all the things that I do, which is really what defines a person, right? Not what they say they do, but what they actually do day to day. And um, yeah, I mean, even to this day, right? I mean, I still have to think about, you know, more on the personal side, like how to invest and how to, you know, you know, allocate assets and things like that, as well as on the corporate side, how to, how to do that as well. Um, so, you know, I think it's been a slow epiphany to, to directly answer your question over years that I'm not yeah. just a film director, right? Like, you know, I'm not just a writer of, 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 of scenarios, right. Which at, for some time I thought that that's what I had to only be. Um, but if I think about the day to day and all those things that I do, it's like, yeah, I mean, I actually use quite a lot of skills from you know the finance world. Um, I was even just yesterday, like, you know, doing some you know, asset balancing, so to speak. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> so, so you, you yeah. still use all those skills, you keep them up kind of, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's an ongoing process is what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, I still, you know, I'm lucky that, you know, uh, things that I've chosen to invest in, um, sometimes, you know, they bear fruit over the course of, you know, maybe 10 plus years. Um, and, uh, you know, that's one of the funny things about being an investor, right? I mean, all of us, if we have something to put somewhere, right, whether we decide to just put it in the bank and get whatever the interest rate is there, or we put it in, you know, like the S&P 500, like, you know, we all practice that skill to some degree, or many people practice that skill. I know not everyone is lucky to, to practice that, so I'm, I'm aware of that. But, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, it was, it's a weird skill to think about, right? Because that was my profession for a while, being an investor. And for a lot of investments, especially when the venture capital side of the startup side, you don't know for maybe, you know, eight plus years, whether your, you know, your investment is good. Right. So, you know, if you wanted to learn to be a chef, you can kind of learn that night. Did I make a good, you know, chicken pot pie? Did I make a good dessert? Um, it's kind of not true for an investor, right? Like some of my investments actually, you know, just came to fruition after 10 years, right. For example, and for 10 years, you just didn't know what was going to happen. Right. So how do you like build that skill? Um, you know, people say it's always better to be lucky than good, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's a skill that all of us to some degree practice, whether consciously or not, I think sure. I'm lucky that I was trained professionally. So, you know, I have some amount of conscious, you know, I guess effort put into that. So, yeah. And there's also investing time, right. You know, yeah. you can, you can invest more than dollars in anything, right. Uh, including things like startups or, you know, yeah. if you're looking to make your own experiences, time is, is another component, right. Time is everything, right. Yeah. <laughs> Eugene, when um, I went on your podcast, Compound Witness, everyone check it out. Awesome show. Um, We discussed a little bit some of these similarities as well. Uh, When I was in architecture school, I thought about how long it takes for a building to get constructed versus like theater and drama can move at a much um, faster pace. So usually around this part in the show, we'd start to ask people about their background in Unreal Engine. But in your case, I'd like to broaden that a little bit more. And especially because your background is so like you didn't start out just being like, I'm an artist who loves to paint. And then I thought I'd turn that art into 3D models. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about making your way into the world of 
digital art, you know, storytelling with 3D, uh, and then eventually how that makes its way into VR. And then maybe along the way, uh, especially with your newer work, how Unreal Engines has started to play a role in that. Yeah, I, th I think it's a great uh, question. So thanks for kind of framing it that way, Alex. Um, yeah, it, the I think the the broader way to think about it is, you know, as a writer director of you know stories, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's like very similar that that core aspect, right? Despite the tools that we're using to make these experiences, the the actual, you know, like what what is it that I that I do for these experiences? I mean, the experiences we make are short. Um, you know, like they're short, they're not cheap, but they're short, right? I mean, they're, they're no Pixar film, right? Pixar is, you know, $1 million a minute. At least it was back 10 years ago and <laughs> more, you know, so like a hundred minute film is like a hundred million bucks, right? I mean, these are all rough numbers that are probably no longer accurate, right? But, um, you know, animation is very expensive, right? And, and, and all those things. But if you go back to like, what does a director writer do, right? I mean, at the end of the day, these short films that we made, um, you know, like I took a, you know, pen, you know, my favorite pen and paper and, you know, sit in a cafe as, as uh, cliche as that sounds like, you know, in San Francisco, you know, writing, and I had to do this on the weekends because, you know, I, you know, the, you know, actually having to manage and stuff during, during the week, it was really hard to get that kind of extra time. Right. So a lot of that writing was just, you know, on my own, uh, you know, on the weekend time, which is ironic. It's my job, but I still have to find car ride time outside uh, to be able to do that. Um, but then I'm really lucky that, you know, a lot of, after, you know, you do the writing and all that, you know, you go into these rooms and you, you spend a lot of time. Uh, and this is what I was lucky to observe at, at places like a Pixar, but also in other places where, you know, you'll sit around for hours and talk about how do we make the story better, right? Like, so, you know, um, Alfred Hitchcock said that, you know, a movie is the script, the script and the script, right? And uh, I, I, you know, I, I fully agree with that. Like, um, you know, just as a practice practitioner, um, I think that, um, what I was really lucky to see was, I'll give another example, um, you know, my, my short time at Pixar, I was amazed that, um, you know, the story team there, they would spend years like, you know, making their story better and better, and they'd make a scene better and better. Right. And these would be just, you know, like scratches on a piece of paper, right? Like, you know, maybe like pencil scratches on a paper. What's amazing is, you know, the early, you know, the early movies, right. We all think of like, at least, you know, the, the golden age of Pixar, we think of like, they're all so great, right? You know, like Wally up Ratatouille, and you think like they just kind of came out of someone's brain like that. You know, Ratatouille takes some took something like eight years to make, right? And you know, they had to change like the team and all that. Um, yeah, people are fond of saying, and I think it's true that initially, like these great movies that we see suck. Like they're they're really bad in the beginning, and you can see how bad they are. They're not like trying to be fake humble, right? You look at the early storyboards and they're bad, right? But through effort, through time, and through iteration, they become great, right? They become art. And, uh, you know, that's just the whole 99% perspiration, right? 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. And, um, yeah, so so I remember finally when I saw just these pencil scratches and I saw, like, a full scene, right? Like, that you might see in a movie like an up or a Ratatouille. And it's like, I don't even need to see it animated, right? Like just like the scratch audio, you know, not even, and it's, it's beautiful, right? Like this piece of paper that you like this piece of paper with scratches on it, not even good drawing. Right. And you're just like, and then, and then that's when it clicked to me that I realized like all this technology is great. And, also, and like, I know we're about to talk about and sing the praises of some of these technologies, but honestly, like what I learned was, you know, it's great to do that. It attracts people into seeing it, but it doesn't make your film any better or worse, right? Your film was better or worse based on the script in the beginning. 
And, um, you know, and then your execution, your execution, of course, of that matters. I'm not saying that all these jobs don't matter, but that's really, I think the core, right? You get a good script and, you know, it can be in any medium, any format, and it's going to be incredible. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, that didn't answer your digital thing, but anyway, <laughs> that was, I learned that in an environment of digital stuff, but I did learn that the value of digital, you know, having good stuff that looks pretty on, on screens or whatever. Um, and now in virtual environments, it does matter. I think a lot from a marketing perspective, right? People see pretty things and they want to go see it. Um, but you know, they won't continue to see it unless it's, unless it's good in its core. So, yeah. So let's keep walking through this. So you come yeah. from a world like that, you see how great storytelling can be when it's digital, but at yeah. that point, it's still primarily flat. So how, when you have the opportunities to start putting this into virtual reality, how did you start to think of the advantages that that medium could offer you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I was just blown away by VR, right? In the early days. I mean, you know, in 2000, this iteration of VR, I mean, I had my virtual boys and all that, just like <laughs> a lot of other VR nerds. But back in 2000, um, I want to say 13. Yeah, I think it was 13. Yeah, you know, like, you know, the sea of Oculus taking me through, like, you know, effectively the precursor to, um, you know, some of these amazing new VR uh, technologies that we now see today. And it was just like seeing, you know, a box floating in the air, right? Just seeing a, a, a mirror of you, right? Where you're, all you are is like, you know, like a wooden, like a sphere or something, right? With like maybe two balls for quote eyes. And uh, yeah, I was, I was amazed. I, I was just absolutely amazed. And it, it, it struck me, and I still think it's true that these are going to be the next, you know, platforms that we see, or these are the precursors to the next platforms uh, that will dominate, right? Like we're not going to be in however many years, I don't know how many of those years there will be. We're not going to be looking at these flat screens. Uh, we will be looking at some kind of spatial computing device, some kind of XR device, I guess, as we call it now. Um, you know, I felt that all the way back then, I guess, 10 years ago. And I still feel that way. Again, I don't know what the time scales are. Um, and, you know, my natural instinct is, you know, the game side was very, uh, you know, even then, right. We're making like, you know, Eve, Eve Valkyrie, right. And yeah. we're doing all this, if you remember the earliest days, right. We're making like Lucky's Tale and all these other things that were really cool. I mean, Beat Saber hadn't even come onto the scene yet, but, uh, I was just like, man, you know, stories obviously are going to matter. Right. Um, and I still think that they're going to matter, even though I'd say that, you know, the market for them has grown a little bit differently than games, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was just kind of this vision. I was just like, man, it's just to me very obvious, uh, and to me still very obvious, and that was something that I wanted to make a reality. And I guess I was lucky enough to be in a position where I was able to do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you? How has your, I guess, uh, uh, perception or opinion of the kind of content that maybe not you or or folks you know, but in yeah. general, in the VR space, how's your perception of the VR space and its content changed over the past few years now since you've kind of mm -hmm. been, you know, you've been iterating on this? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I think I, I'm happy to spend a lot of time talking about my work, but I think your question is kind of focused on other people's work. And uh, if I were to just be very blunt and I'm, I'm not shy about this outside of, you know, my work, which I'm happy to talk to length about, <laughs> uh, I, I personally think the best, and this is, a, you know, just a me opinion is definitely not a, a Penrose opinion or anything, but, you know, a Eugene opinion is that I think the best thing in VR so far has been, uh, was created in 2016 by, you know, a team of like three, four people in the Czech Republic and it's called Beat Saber. Yep. Right. And uh, I don't think we've gotten greater than that yet. <laughs> in terms uh, of uh, yeah. Yeah. 
You won't get much pushback from me uh, on that point. That's, that's for sure. I mean, Beat Saber is a great game. There, there's no yeah. doubt about it. And very well made for the medium. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's so simple, but the simplicity, I think, is what plays well to it. I mean, it's one of those things where during the pandemic, my my wife, you know, they close the ski slopes here in Park City. And, um, you know, that's what we use as our exercise. I'll go like, you know, 20 minutes to like, kind of like go to yoga or, or Pilates classes. Right. But um, we had these VR headsets lying around and she just picked them up and she became from nothing to, you know, expert plus on Beat Saber because that was the way to work out. Right. And so, yeah, it's uh, and it's not even that just that it's for working out. I think it's just an incredible experience, right? Like it makes so much sense. Um, I mean, it's not only Beat Saber. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm just an authentic, you know, VR fan, right? So I play, um, you know, I played at Half-Life Alex. I played, um, I played a lot of Echo Arena, maybe pretty sick. Played a real lot of Rec Room. I do a lot of VR chat. I mean, you name your thing. Um, the one unfortunate thing with me in VR is that since the earliest days, uh, I get very sick, motion sick in VR, like extremely motion really? sick. Yeah, so back in the Oculus days, the funny thing was, um, like the CEO and me were two of the people who got the most sick. So they would like, you know, in these big meetings, <laughs> Here, they'd be like, oh, yeah, test it on Eugene, right? Test yeah. it so, you know, the racing game on Eugene. Of course, I would, there'd be days in the early days of, of Oculus where I would just be, be lying flat on the couch. floor or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd be on a couch just like kind of recover from, from the motion sickness. So yeah, no, I suffer from extreme VR sickness, which, uh, yeah. So there's a lot of things that I can't. But I'll give you an example. I really, really want to do bone works. Oh, yeah and bone lab, but I can't, I I've tried, <laughs> I've tried, I've taken the ginger, I put the things on and I, you know, I want to do it. Right. But, uh, man, I can't, I can't do I, really anything from stress level zero. I can't do hover junkers. I can't do that. Gorilla tag. I, I, I think I would love gorilla tag if I were not, uh, susceptible to VR <laughs> motion sickness. So there are all these like amazing things in VR, yeah. uh, that I can't do, unfortunately, but I'm big fans that they're pushing the medium forward. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I bought them works, right. So I'm supporting you know, developers like that to, to do, to do things. Mm -hmm. I, I've been really happy to see the uh, increase in accessibility and comfort options in virtual reality. Um, I sure. have a PSVR two now and just started playing horizon call of the mountain made an unreal engine, by the way. And yeah, what was we're very going to talk about that me, later, right? Yeah, we're definitely mm -hmm. going to talk about it. I, I have a lot of thoughts about it, but I'll just say briefly now that <laughs> I love how much it puts into like, how do you want the turning to happen? How do you want the movement to happen? Do you want this kind of locomotion? You want smooth, smooth locomotion? Um, do you want vignetting? And all of that is all customizable. There's like a giant, you know, cockpit panel of all the options you can do. And what I quite liked is at the beginning, it kind of has you like guess. There's like some broad strokes of like, do you want this, like simple, advanced, super advanced, whatever, and you can start there. And then I've never seen a game do this before. After about 10 minutes, it checks in with you. It's like, hey, how you feeling? Do you want to change any of this? And it's like, oh, thank you for asking. I've never been, you know, <laughs> I've never been considered in that kind of way. And then I went in and changed a couple more settings and it felt better. But uh, I'm really glad to see this movement now. And, and actually, I think this is happening across a lot of gaming. You see a lot of even 2D games that now have more like, you know, red, green, colorblind kind of options and, and things like that. Or for, you know, what about someone who only has access to one hand? How can you uh, make the experience enjoyable for them in VR or even with a, a gamepad? Um, so just very nice to see gaming trending toward the, you know, idea that it really should be for as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Accessibility has been such a big topic in general in games. I, um, I've mentioned, I guess a few times, um, I, I'm excited for GDC this year. <laughs> uh, and there's a whole, like a whole track just on accessibility in games, yeah. which is, is really great to see, but I think it's such mm -hmm. a, 
I, I, I personally would consider it a, a, a misunderstood kind of topic in game design or, or, or UI design in general, because I, I don't think people really understand the, the, what kind of scope accessibility means, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just colorblindness and like, if you're missing a limb, there's like, there's all sorts of, you know, wide swaths of accessibility features that could just make people's experience better, you know, yeah. even if you don't have, you know, some reason mm -hmm. to, to make huge changes to your game, like just adding small things. Like I, I remember a, a talk back in the day from like Borderlands where they made the different like levels of guns, different colors, and they had a different sound and the size of the light was a different size so that even when you're, you know, if you didn't have great sight or you weren't very good with the rest of the UI, you could tell when there was an important moment that you had to catch, right? Mm. And it's just like those kinds of features that it was an accessibility team that worked on. So I, I think that's interesting, Alex, that I, I thought the check-in was particularly interesting because this is like an obvious A-B testing thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like you give people settings, then you never follow up whether they actually <laughs> like it. And so you can never learn from it. I mean, I, I think that's pretty interesting, honestly. I'd love to see the data of like, you know, what yeah. kind of settings did people change after 10 minutes? Um, Eugene, do you ever go to, to GDC or any of those kinds of conferences or is that not really your scene? <laughs> yeah, so um, I think we, we've done a lot of things in the, um, you know, in the film world, right? So yeah. we've been to places like Sundance and uh, do Tribe the Tribeca Film Festival. We were lucky to win the very first line for Best yeah. VR best, uh, Film Festival for Arnold's Way. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we love these uh, film festivals. You know, the game world, I mean, a lot of what we do is a mix between what the game world is and the film world. Uh, so we use a lot of the tools from game companies. So and we used to be based, you know, right in San Francisco, pretty close to the Moscone Center. So we, we actually would do quite a lot at GDC pre-COVID, um, right? Uh, now, post-COVID, kind of everything's kind of up in the air in terms of, you know, events and things like that. But I've always been a fan of GDC. You know, we were featured, we were lucky to be featured by Unreal um, in, I think it was GDC 2016 uh, mm. for, Alamet, uh, for Alamet. So, you know, we got the the tap on the shoulder, the invite, and, you know, they um, the, the the team, uh, you know, they, we had like a, a thing on the, on the Epic booth and it was a great experience so yeah fond memories i remember that was when um one of the earliest of uh, that was when Santa's sacrifice i think was kind of announced and there was that there was that um amazing experience where they where they had the actor kind of play uh or you know play live and you know being that live mocap uh experience and then it was kind of revealed oh it's live um and you know i put that on i just did a quick video on my twitter and it was a extremely you know it was like you know one of my <laughs> I don't, I'm not really that active on Twitter, but it was one of my more viral like videos. Cause it was like <laughs> the reveal that it's a real live person. Uh, and I think that was one of the first clues uh, that, you know, there's just some amazing things you can do with, you know, tools like, uh, you know, like, like the ones we were, we're about to, I suppose, talk about. Yeah. yeah. Now, full disclosure, I didn't know that Alumet was actually made in Unreal Engine. Um, I, for some reason, mm -hmm. I thought that you guys were mostly in Unity up until fairly recently. So can you talk a little bit about um, bouncing between, mm -hmm. you know, all these different tools out there and how you end up deciding um, what to use for, you know, which storytelling needs you, need, you have? <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question. So actually, most of the we, we've had uh, several projects in Unreal and several in Unity, but we have mostly been, uh, I would say, you know, much more heavily in Unreal. Um, yeah, why do we choose Unreal? I mean, you know, we're going all the way back like almost ten years, right? So I mean, you know, in Oculus, we were using Unreal um, uh, back 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 in the day. I mean, we're using both, right? Obviously, but uh, I think we did a lot of Unreal when we're doing the internal stuff. And it's just, I mean, it's quite, you know, as simple as 
uh, back in the day, again, you know, we're talking about a, a, a unreal versus unity from a long time ago. Right. Oh, yeah. So it's yeah. not uh, relevant today. Uh, today. I think they're just like so closely matched. I mean, they're yes. just very different, they're different tools for sure, but you know, a lot has changed in, in 10 years, back, back in 10 years, the, the old, the old adage was, um, you know, with, uh, unity, you know, you work, you know, you work, uh, you work a lot to make it look good and in unreal. You work a lot to make it optimized, right. Make it performance, right. It was the kind of the old joke. Um, or, or rather the old adage. And, um, you know, I think we just like stuff that looked good. And I think we didn't care as much about, you know, like there was like the mobile versus PC question. And we're just like, you know what, for us, the most important thing, and that kind of came from the tradition of we're like, no one knows you can tell stories in this thing. Right. I think that's changed now, but we're like, people like stories. They like these like beautiful things. And they want those stories to look good and they have a certain expectation for it. So it matters more that we can show the world that it's possible to make these beautiful stories using real-time engines um, than it is to like get it on every device, right? And I think that was an okay move uh, in the sense that, you know, there were just weren't a lot of devices 10 years ago, right? I mean, there's still not, not a lot of devices even now. I mean, I think developers can do decently well in VR now, but definitely not back then. So... I mean, we're lucky that a few people who did get to see it, you know, wrote nice, you know, articles about it and, you know, said nice things about us on the internet. Uh, and I think that really helps, you know, spur some of the inspiration for some of this stuff. So, you know, I'd say long story, that's kind of, you know, one of the things, um, one of the things, and then after we chose it, then it became like, you know, um, at Penrose specifically, we've done a lot to like modify the engine from the earliest days. Um, I think we were, I think, and I'm not sure entirely about this. So, you know, I know this is being recorded, so I, if I'm wrong, that you know, someone <laughs> on the internet let me know. But I think we were one of the first to do like real-time water in the way that, um, at least in the way that you see it now in the engine cool. uh, with Arden's Wake. And I think some of that, like some of the learnings from that, generally, you know, I, I was surprised and in, in, in a pleasant way to find find some of that, you know, find its way into Fortnite in later seasons, and you know, when there was like the big water season and stuff like that. So I think we're <laughs> very proud of our involvement with like really going in and like making big, big changes to the source code in the engine. And, uh, you know, I mean, it does make our jobs a lot harder, but it does allow us to achieve, you know, a certain level of visual fidelity that, as I mentioned before, I think is, you know, important to getting people, you know, interested in this, the idea that you can do virtual reality as a, you know, as stories. Eugene, would you say that your work on water had a bit of a ripple effect? <laughs> <laughs> We get we get punny here sometimes. Oh, get punny. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, so. W w what made you want to go that that deep? Like, what what was the feature that was missing initially that made you say, "I'm gonna go find a bunch of rendering engineers and figure this out"? You know, like what what was that? Yeah, you know, it's 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 maybe more of an accident of history of the sense that you know we we're lucky to have some like you know talented people. And I think they, they saw that as a challenge, right? I mean, good people, what they like to do is not, I mean, not only, you know, get compensated well, I mean, that's part of it, but it really, what they're really motivated by is like hard and interesting problems, right? So uh, I can't really claim credit for some of the awesome work. Like, you know, I think the clouds, I think we were at SIGGRAPH um, talking about like, you know, volumetric clouds in, in engine, right? Which normally yeah. like in a place like a DreamWorks or Pixar, it would take like, you know, a day just to render, you know, just a few frames of these clouds, right? And we of course have to do it in real time. We have to do it, you know, 90 times a second, right? Or, you know, once every 11.1 .1 milliseconds. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think I'm just lucky to have, you know, they're great people and they like these problems as like, hey, we're gonna do a cloud city. And, uh, you know, in my head, I'm just imagining like little blocks or clouds where they're like, oh, we're going to do volumetric clouds that have never been done before in real time. 
and then get invited to these fancy talks about it. Right. So anyway, <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's perhaps happy accidents. I think we just get talented people together. Like good things happen. I think maybe is the, the right, you know, maybe the right, uh, you know, lesson. And, you know, that was not back in, was back in the old days when we weren't just on these, you know, screens here. Right. Like I think there's a big difference between people who are in real rooms, uh, you know, getting together and talking about how to make things better. Um, and I, I definitely still miss that. And I think that's, I still think that the biggest companies are going to be the ones that have more in-person time, like in the next like 10 years, when I look back and say, Hey, you know, the ones that really focus on that important person stuff is, are those going to be the startups that, that make a big difference in my view. Yeah. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah. So what are the, the things, uh, inside of, you know, we kind of just spoke about the things you, your team jumped on to, to change because they, you know, they mm -hmm. wanted to take the, take the torch, right? What are the things that you've just gladly accepted, you know, uh, recently in Unreal? Because there's been so many, you know, Alex mm -hmm. and I, we spent a full episode just talking about, you know, the, the 5.1 release, for example, and just how many features that they packed into it. Yeah. What, what is, you know, what mm -hmm. is your approach to, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, evaluating new features for your project? So what, catch, what catches your eye? When you see, you know, a feature release, is it a specific rendering feature or is it just like a quality of life thing? Is it a, uh, yeah. you know, what is it that's kind of fascinating to you now? I mean, so much, right? I mean, the the kind of developments that have happened are, are so incredible. But, you know, kind of talking about maybe general philosophies. Um, we, I think we made our lives very hard by making these big engine changes, right? Yeah, so like, <laughs> you know, whether it was like trying to make some special thing for ARKit or, you know, I mean, we've just gone through so many of these sagas. And, um, you know, one of our more recent projects, which is not announced, we we did make, we, for example, made an engine change to 426, but it was something required. We had to change like something in the server code just to get it to work. And it was actually, you know, acknowledged by, by people that it was, you know, something that needed to be fixed. Um, but then like, you know, downloading that, I mean, it's like tens of gigabytes, if not more, and then you got to compile the new engine. And then sometimes it doesn't compile on someone else's machine and you're not there to help them to figure out how to compile it or, you know, you don't have an engine anyway. So long story short, um, I'm more excited. Like the, the, the one issue is, you know, if you are, um, we have done the thing where we get excited about new features. So from like four to six, then it's like, oh my, oh my goodness, let's look at four to seven and now look at five and five one. Right. And then, um, but a lot of, you know, a lot of these, a lot of game companies, what they have to do is what we do is like lock engine, right? I mean, you lock engine, you might be locked on an engine version for, for years, right? For the year, for the project. Um, so that's a long way to say, I think that a more responsible thing to do is kind of lock engines. Cause every time you upgrade as, you know, I mean, even Alex and I talked about in the last one, right? You upgrade from five to five, one, you know, things break and you gotta go in there. I imagine going from four to six to four to seven to then, you know, five and beyond on a gigantic project with lots of, um, uh, with lots of, uh, you know, with lots of stuff. So, um, yeah, so I think the, um, uh, I think the, the thing I'm excited about, there's so many things to be excited about with the new engine releases, right? Like with MetaHumans, with like live link and, you know, all of the stuff that you can do and that, um, it's probably going to be more like kind of one-off projects or, or things that are different for us. So I'm excited about like trying to experiment in small ways with these things, because you can't, it's much harder to take this big thing with momentum. Right. And then, I mean, even gigantic game companies can't do that. Right. You know, these big companies with the big things, they're stuck on the old engine from, you know, like, you know, seven years ago. Right. So, um, but what am I excited about? I mean, you know, like, I think the, um, 
yeah, I think some of the advancements in the last few years, I'm excited about this for years, but like some of the things you can do with virtual production, some of the things that small teams or even just an individual can do with things like metahumans, right? Things like an iPhone, just capturing, you know, your, you know, your face. I mean, we've done some experimentations with that, um, getting a quest pro and, you know, getting in there and, and doing a podcast. Um, you know, I'm really excited about, you know, where is this going to go? I mean, of course we, you know, I'm a VR nerd, a VR supporter, and I love the metaverse and all those things. So, you know, like, I'm really excited about what kinds of things these can do with like virtual production and, and eventually what I think can be, you know, like the beginnings of a new art form for storytelling, right. A brand new art form for storytelling. Um, and we're just like at the early stages of figuring out the language of that, uh, you know, even now many, many years into, you know, this version of VR. So, yeah. And short follow-up on that, Eugene, I'm curious, looking back on all the incredible pieces you've produced so far, yeah. how many of those were, did the idea or the initial conception of it come from seeing the capabilities of a technology and saying, oh, I can tell this kind of story versus saying, here's a story I really want to tell, and I'm going to force the technology to like, you know, help me tell this story. All of them have been the latter. I mean, probably surprise <laughs> given. <laughs> I've never thought about, I mean, in the creation of the story, you think about, you know, the medium because the medium is different. If you're going to tell something on the stage versus telling something in the cinema, you're going to have to tell it slightly differently, but yeah, no. And it probably explains why we've done things like wrangled the engine, you know, to try to do what we wanted to do. Right. We're, yeah. we're just constantly make the world, you know, like what we want it to be. Um, but yeah, no, entirely based on story. I want to tell nothing. Re I mean, it, it's intertwined. So, right. So like, you know, Alamed, we thought of as like a cloud city and like, I was always thought from the beginning, like you can be in the cloud city, but yeah, pretty much everything's been about, you know, story first. And I think that, you know, I think that's an important uh, foundation for us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Love it. Um, cool. So I, I want to keep diving as much into Eugene's backstory as possible because it's amazing and fascinating. And I think he has so many lessons to teach us about <laughs> investment and how to take your passions and bring them into, you know, fulfilling fields and leading a team of, of super technical people. But I also want to spend some time today just geeking out about some video games because that's something we've wanted sure. to do for a little bit of time. And yeah. uh, I think we, we'd I love to just dive in a little bit about uh, everything from, you know, games that we get excited about, things we have critiques about. We can talk about the narrative of some of them, but I thought yeah. it'd be fun to choo -choo -choo, have like a little segment here where it's like, let's talk about <laughs> some games made in Unreal Engine and, and what we think about them. Um, sure. Jacob, for example, I know yeah. you're one of those people who um, jumped right into trying out Hogwarts Legacy. How's that been so far? I That's did, my yeah. Engine, yeah. I mean, I, I messaged Alex <laughs> last week because I was, I started Hogwarts Legacy. So I, the backstory is I, I have very little free time during the week. So what happens is I get to the, the weekend and I say, all right, I'm going to force myself to just take a break and do something. Right. And so usually uh, that's listening to music, whatever it is. But more recently, I've been playing a few games that I wanted to catch up on. So I played through the God of War series that I, I loved. It was really an incredible franchise. Um And definitely can't can't recommend that that game series enough. Uh, really great. And then as I was finishing up God of War, Ragnarok, um, <clears throat> and I, God of War, I don't believe is Unreal Engine. Yeah. <laughs> I would be very surprised if it was. Uh, but um, as I was finishing that up, Hogwarts Legacy came out. So I made the decision to go to that next. And so I finished God of War and then I load up Hogwarts Legacy and I, I'm playing on uh, PS5 and I download it. And I'm like, wow, this looks terrible. <laughs> and I'm like, 
and I could tell right away it, it was Unreal because you can always see kind of like telltale signs when you're Unreal Engine developer. It's, it's I think I could pick it out pretty easily, but it was just terrible. And then I went and they had two modes. It was like frame rate optimized and quality optimized. The frame rate uh, optimized version looked terrible. Like I said, it, it looked like there was no shadowing at all. It was just awful then you go to the performance uh sorry the the quality optimized and it was unplayable it was like 20 frame, frames a second so i was like okay i'm not doing this so i went over to pc and i shelled out the money to buy the game again which is stupid mm -hmm. um but i download it and i start playing and it's just one thing after another got more distracting um i, I and some of this is definitely again just me kind of picking things out of the game that i i'm sure I, I well maybe most people do uh, do not um but for example i i messaged alex because debug arrows kept popping up in the game i'd be doing things all of a sudden like the standard unreal engine debug arrow would like shoot out of my wand and i was like what's guys what's going on here this is a production build there shouldn't like unreal isn't allowed to create debug arrows in production builds of games like it's just not allowed to do that and on top of that, I had like the Nanite view pop up randomly and a bunch of other things. Now, on top of that, I'm just like generally disturbed. It, it to me felt like a game that was very rushed right at the end because there was like three or four pieces of the game or there's certain areas, for example, that was clear that they had taken advantage of everything that Unreal could give them. You know, they, they were using Nanite. They were using, uh, you know, uh, uh, they, I don't believe Lumen was used at all, uh, but I, I do believe that they were uh, uh, probably experimenting with it to some extent because uh, the of just how complex the geometry was there. Sorry? I'm curious if the, if the lights looked uh, baked to you or, or like movable. Well, so they have all the, the, the ray tracing settings that you can enable. Um, I couldn't run them because they were pretty uh it, it, like my frame rate would just die immediately yeah. um it because I, I i get the feeling that they were trying to get lumen to work and then couldn't and so they just <laughs> fell back to oh no hey they can enable ray tracing if they want yeah. uh, but like i said there's a few areas that had nanite and all this incredible detail like hogwarts looks beautiful and all this and then you get to like this lock picking scene or like this little cutaway and all of a sudden, it looks like a game from like 20, 30 years ago where the texture looks like 240p and like uh, it looks like maybe 100 polygons in the whole thing. And it's just like, what what happened here? You know, like <laughs> I anyone could create like a decent looking lock in Unreal in probably an hour. And it just seemed really quite rushed. So mm -hmm. it, it frustrated me that, uh, you know, people will be exposed to Unreal Engine games like this, <laughs> a, a very popular game, and come out with the impression that, you know, oh, Unreal Engine sucks. There's all these bugs. Like, there's all sorts of noise issues with ray tracing where your screen would just randomly get all splotchy because the noise was just building up on, like, some sort of probably screen space something. Um, so, yeah. I, I was very disappointed uh, with the Unreal Engine that in uh, Hogwarts Legacy, um, and that's besides the uh, the like uh, very awkward dialogue. And, and Eugene might uh, find you this funny. Help them. <laughs> 
Yeah, might find this funny. So, you know, in most games, what you do is you have walking dialogue, right? The character in front of you or characters around you will engage you, right? in conversation and so you can continue moving around or maybe you're walking to an objective right and that keeps the player engaged so that they're listening to the audio and they don't just have to skip a cutscene, right in this game i would say 30 to 40 percent of the playtime is forced dialogue between two characters and they don't it's not one character moving the other one walking or anything like that it's no matter where you are you snap <laughs> do a like an interview one-on-one -on -one, and you just have this forced dialogue back and forth and it you can't pause the game while you're in it so like if someone has a long dialogue thing you can't just pause it and come back your options are skip or just sit through it and suffer and yeah it after playing such a great game that really took advantage of the technology and was just incredibly beautiful and like i had no problems with coming to a game that was just so clearly uh, uh needed a little love you know it, it, it was it was quite shocking yeah um a few things coming to mind there one actually is uh, we'll just keep cycling back in questions for eugene so one thing that of course a lot of the penrose experiences have in common is this kind of dollhouse miniature scale which i always found wonderful too because the assets look so incredibly detailed especially at that smaller scale and you can get as close to them as you want and it's like look how perfect this desk is um that being said because the scale is so much tinier I've always felt like, oh, I really want to push the limits to see how much Penrose's team has built out this world and try like walking really far away. When I did Arden's Wake for the first time, I intentionally started the experience very high up so I could go downstairs and see how deep into the ocean I could go and see if I could like follow the father, uh, Richard Armitage's character, like as deep down as I could, uh, just to see like how much was modeled. So I, really quickly, Eugene, I'm curious how much thought you put into like building out the world to the point where some crazy person like me is going to challenge the limits of the storytelling? Yeah, it's a great question. And it kind of dovetails into, you know, what, what Jacob said about the game in the sense of like, as developers, it's like, you know, you wish you did so much right after, <laughs> after the fact. Uh, so I can only imagine what it must be like for really any developer, but uh, to answer your question, Alex directly. Yeah, we, um, you know, if it was up to me, like everything in that world would be like built out and detailed, right? I mean, there's little things you might have noticed, like um, actually, I think our CG supervisor's like dog is in the bathroom, right? And there's like little nooks and crannies and stuff everywhere. But, you know, to be performant, to be able to run at 90 FPS on, you know, old hardware on like a 1080, right? Uh, we had to, um, or even even less than that, I think a 970 was a, was the Oculus Min spec back in the yeah. day, right? So 90 FPS on a 970, uh, you can't do a lot, right? So, you know, we put actually a lot more in there and a lot of, you know, stuff had to be taken out just so that it could run at frame rate, um, you know, and pass like, you know, all the, all the stuff. I mean, I had to run on like, you know, things like PlayStation and stuff like that. Right. Which has a much lower PlayStation two, I mean, right. Or play, PlayStation four, not right. I think a PS PlayStation two, sorry, VR I thought of the PS2. PlayStation yeah, four. It would be impressive. You could run something on a PlayStation two. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That would make my childhood uh, fantasies really come alive with it. So, um, Nice. Yeah, but, um, but I think the future is like fully immersive world. I mean, you know, with, um, you know, with, I think clever tricks, you know, being able to load things, you know, on the fly. Um, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of magic, like asynchronous space warp, right? Like yeah. that's a real, that's a real thing. Um, yeah, I think, I think we'll get to a world where we can, you know, I mean, even just like, 
you know, going through cyberpunk or even just GTA, like there's just some, or, or just Fortnite, right? I mean, speaking of an unreal game, I think one of my favorite unreal games is actually Fortnite. Yep. Um, personally, just on a pure personal basis. Um, yeah, there's just uh, these incredible worlds that you can create and you just create every detail. And it's going to get to the point where it's just be able to simulate everything you want to simulate, right? But uh, the day is not today, but it will come eventually. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think... Uh... Yeah, it, it it's it is quite. I, I have to imagine, like you said, it's quite frustrating as a developer to feel like, uh, especially I, I I imagine it's a very large team working on something like Hogwarts Legacy. I I don't know the the headcount, but I assume it's in the hundreds, right? Mm-hmm. But I would, I would assume it's very frustrating in in that kind of scenario to feel like you really did your job well, and then no one like the person who had to do this last minute didn't have enough time, like just simply was not given the resources to do it. And so all of a sudden what you did, like it, it is instantly, you know, uh, uh, sacrificed. Right. And, and I remember there were similar conversations around games like, you know, like cyberpunk and, and Skyrim and all these other games that came out and people said, Oh, it's too soon. It's so buggy. I can't play it. And it goes in this whole thing. So yeah. Eugene, what, what is, and I guess people talk about this a lot in pretty much any creative application. Like, what is yeah. the point when you say it's done, it's mm-hmm. ready? Yeah. Like, how do you make mm-hmm. that decision with your projects? <laughs> it's a good question. I think the way that, uh, you know, we and I make those decisions is very different than I think what I probably perceive as, as optimal. So maybe I'll talk about both of those, right? Uh, like uh, the old you know, kind of the old 1800s American voting adage, right? You know, you, you try to ship early and often, right? You try to vote early and often, right? So, um, you know, so I, I think uh, there's a story. So I think what we're not great at, uh, just completely frankly, is like shipping things quickly, right? I think we're too much perfectionists. And I think it's true of a lot of artists. So I'm not just like pointing the fingers at us, but I think that's, you know, I mean, just, I think that's something we also suffer from as probably many others people do. Um, Gnomes and Goblins took like seven years to come out between the preview and the release. That was just one example that came to mind immediately. <laughs> yeah, a- absolutely. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, think, think of Half-Life, right? Before Alex came out, right? I mean, just yeah. I mean, still, so uh, people still want that. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, um, you know, Doom, right? They Doom Eternal or whatever, right? So um, yeah, I, I think there's that old, old adage, you know, my opinions on this has changed So before. I think I really thought we had to be like really perfect. Right. And I still think we do. Um, but it was like an extreme sense of perfectionism, but I I've kind of come to a different view on that. And I think that it is, um, I, I think you should ship as quickly as you can, right. And ship as often as you can. Right. And I think that actually as an investor too, one of the things you see is the, sh- com- the teams that ship, even if they embarrass themselves because of how bad the products are, they tend to do better. Right. So there's like an old like story of, you know, there's like a parable, which I think is actually true. It's not even a parable. It's like a real study they did where it's like, you told two groups of people to make ceramic pots, right? They don't know how to make ceramic pots. And so, you know, they, so they told one group, Hey, make, um, the best pot you can possibly make, right? That's one group. The other group, they say, make as many pots as you can make, right? And when, every time they do the study over and over, of course, the, the group that has the best pot is the group that has made the most amount of pots, not the group that they said, go make the best pot possible, right? Because you learn from your mistakes. You can only learn by doing, right? And as you learn and you release, and even just releasing something, you know, you learn, you know, however terrible and however embarrassing it can be, you learn, right? So, um, 
actually was, uh, you know, um, it was actually my, the production designer I was working with. Uh, he was at DreamWorks. Uh, you know, he did some big movies and stuff. He also was also a Crytek. So, you know, he was like the head of art for a lot of big projects. And uh, he actually was the one who turned me on to Beeple, right? You know, before Beeple sold his thing for 67 million bucks, <laughs> like years before that. And he was like, look at this guy. He's just making random stuff every day. How great is that, right? I mean, imagine this guy is like a guy who's like, you know, led big art teams at some of these major studios, right? So he's, you know, done serious work. And he's telling me to look at some guy on Instagram that's making random stuff of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Like, I mean, it was different, different uh, stuff back then, but, yeah. you, know, you know, like every day. But the point was that he did it every single day. Right. Um, and I think that there's something uh, to that. And actually, that's why it's going back to the whole thing of me being excited about Unreal 5.1 and stuff. And like, you know, we have these big projects that are on like old engines and it's like, you know, it's going to take forever to, and we still need to go work on those things. But I'm really excited about like one off, like really quick experiments, you know, like quick experiment, get it out. Right. Quick experiment, get it out. Right. And I'm much more onto that, even though it's like against my, probably my nature. I think it's what's going to make, you know, us better at being artists is just getting stuff out there. Right. Yeah. So it's like, you know, we could have just like a small little team here just doing whatever. Right. Like it doesn't matter what it is, just get it out there and sure. Get made fun of. I mean, you know, you bring up these things. I mean, like no man's sky, right. Cyberpunk. Oh these are things that were reviled and yet they, some of them, I mean, some of them of course are just bad and they, they, they go down to oblivion, but I mean, you know, some of these are, are actually some of the most played games still, you know, of their, of their vintage. Right. And, um, you know, there's no such thing as bad press, I guess is what they say, but sometimes you, you kind of believe it when you see like how much people hated no man's sky. Right. And, you know, yeah. upon its release, how much cyberpunk was reviled. Right. I mean, it's almost now the open world standard and in, 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 in by many people's, you know, book. So yeah, I think just ship early and often. Right. It's like, if I could ship something every day, I think that would probably make us better. It would probably make me better as an artist if I literally just devoted to, I mean, it's just kind of hard to do that, but I think that's actually the right call almost every day, at least, right? Yeah. Maybe every week, as soon as ever, as often as you can, right? Right. The, as quant you can. the quantity thing is definitely tricky, especially for something more complex, like a game or a, um, uh, a story. Yeah. But I'm curious, let me pose this question to you, Eugene. What would you say is the yeah. closest equivalent to ship early and shift often in the world of storytelling? Cause I think I have an answer, but I want to hear yours. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I suspect, I mean, you know, we don't have the evidence cause we don't have like the video cameras back in the day, 1600 seeing Richard Burbage going around the stage, like mm -hmm. acting, you know, in Hamlet. But um, I think Shakespeare is actually probably one of the best examples of that because he was able to modify. Cause like, you know, you think of like what's in the quarto and the first folio and all these other. So, so meaning like there are all these versions. Right. And in the end, it was like the actors trying to figure out like what, you know, what were the lines, right? And then they're trying to debate and then, you know, eventually finds its way into, you know, something that, that we read, you know, as in high school. But uh, the reality is I think what's great about that and partly what, what I'm excited about real-time storytelling in VR is, you know, you, you make something like Arden's Wake, you know, and you have great actors, but you you can't other than like seeing people after the fact. And actually we did change some stuff after the fact, right? So a good example is nobody was going to the lighthouse. So in the, in the first, uh, in the second scene or whatever, right. When you know, you this lighthouse, when people just stand there. So we actually have this thing where, you know, depending on how you move, we change how the story unfolds. Right. Oh, so, cool. so it's like, it's called a redirected walking. Right. So, you know, we just kind of get you into the house. Right. Cause we just noticed so many times. <laughs> so it's a small example of that, but you know, Shakespeare had the advantage where he had all these plays and he could, he could tell, you know, you put on something, you put it on Mary Wise Windsor, are people laughing? Are they not? Okay. Well, I'm going to modify the line, you know, you know, so I think that, 
you know, is, I think it's great. I, I think that's actually probably the best way of iterating because, you know, even though he only wrote like a few dozen plays and a bunch of sonnets, those plays went through a lot of changes and iterations because he was able to see and work with actors who are speaking his lines and he's able to, you know, he's able to see what people reacted to and he's able to like change it, you know, you know, day by day. So, um, anyway, that's my, that's my answer about how you ship early and often with storytelling. Love it. Yeah, I was just going to say theater and maybe like stand up comedy, but I like the very specific idea there of the way workshopping was happening, particularly in the time of Shakespeare, because you just don't see a lot of that happening right now. Um, a, a lot of film actors even talk about how wonderful it is if they get like two weeks of rehearsal before a scene because it just lets them get into those characters and those moments so much more. And it's seen as a luxury um, because of, you know, obvious reasons, budgets and all that. But it does seem like there are these opportunities coming now with all these real time technologies, with motion capture, with the fact that you could yeah. grab someone who's on their like lunch break. I don't even know how this would work from like a union perspective, but you could have a very talented yeah. actor who's on their break on another project and they could pop in and use like move AI and live link face or something and yep. do like a really quick rehearsal uh, with you for a, a piece you're working on uh, for 10 minutes. Yep. And that kind of thing wouldn't have been possible, you know, 10 years ago. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think you're kind of getting to a, a, an interesting point there with just the, how iteration is changing in, in the artistic mm -hmm. process in general. And, and I kind of mm -hmm. have two asides here. I mean, the first one is, you know, you're kind of talking about this iterative process where you have to kind of fail early and often, like you said, or lots mm. of iterations, right? And there's always that idea, okay, if you stuck a monkey in a room with a typewriter, that's the classic, <laughs> you know, kind of a, a, a story yeah. is, hey, if you, mm -hmm. if you stuck a, a monkey in a room with a typewriter, would he write Shakespeare? Uh, and mm -hmm. the the logical answer is probably not. Um, yeah. However, in theory, sure. You know, Eventually there's nothing. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> just happen. takes a, a very long amount of time, right? But we're kind mm -hmm. of getting to a point where, you know, I mean, it, Alex Roy brought up a few AI tools, but, you know, we've been trying to perfect this whole iteration thing in technology in general. Like, how can we write programs or, or software or experiences, whatever it is, that over time gets better at whatever it is we're trying to, you know, make it do. Um, and, yeah. you know, certainly we're getting to a point where like we can iterate very quickly alongside these, you know, these tools to, you know, kind of speed up that iteration process and fuel ideas. Right. Um, and I think that's interesting. I, I would say the other part of this is that the creative process is still, I think, very kind of mysterious to everyone. Right. In the sense that there are equally as many people. Uh, you know, I, I can kind of uh, think of, for example, musicians who have spoken about, hey, I just write a ton of songs and some of them stick versus, you know, that there's like the Elton Johns of the world who like sit down, like write a song on the spot. Right. Like they just write a bunch of stuff and something sticks and it works. E even then, I mean, there's probably good reason to believe that their good songs are not necessarily the ones they thought on the spot but there are equally as many artists who won't write anything for a month and then they have some idea and they develop it and maybe it sucks maybe it doesn't right um and so i think we could talk about the iteration right and we could talk about kind of the tools that we use to take an idea and develop it and i think mm -hmm. those are rapidly changing but i think we still kind of understand very little about creativity in general and, and kind of how that 
figures into to our own psyche and, and how that our relationship with the tools that we use relates to our ability to to develop these creative thoughts. I, I think that's kind of still open-ended. I you totally do, agree. Are you, uh, I think it's George R. R. Martin who talks about writers who are uh, gardeners, who kind of like foster an idea and kind of see what it becomes. And then there's the architects that like have a very strong structure and are trying to execute that with a, a level of precision. How would you uh, define yourself if you had to be somewhere on that spectrum? Um, I'm definitely the, uh, not the architect. I'm definitely like, <laughs> I think in, in, in strategy, they call it the Fox, right? Or, I, you know, there's the, um, there, there's like the two, uh, the, the sort of the two modes, right? There's like, you know, the, the people with the big vision, you know, and then try to, and then the people who move around and actually strategically, I, I think I'm a Fox just in, in general by nature, like yeah. somebody moves around on the day, but, um, in strategy, at least, I don't know about an art, uh, it does, uh, in strategy, at least, I think it, it does uh, yield better results on average. Um, you know, basically adapting to you know hour by hour and day by day at times. Um, but but I think it, it kind of dovetails a lot into what uh, what Jacob was saying uh, as well. Like you know the you know I mean on the flip side, you know we can talk about like iterating and stuff. But at the end of the day, you have to have talent. You have to have drive and talent, right? <laughs> you have to have, you have to have like enormous talent, and then you have to have like the interest and the drive to to be able to do that, right? So just because you know, you do think just because you just do things and generate random stuff doesn't, I don't think generate success. I think, you know, talented person doing that, uh, you know, has a better chance of generating success, but you know, I go back to something, you know, Emerson actually has a, um, he has a Ralph Waldo Emerson. He has a, a thing about art. Um, he has an essay about art. He has a lot of essays and they're all great. Um, <laughs> I was about to say essays on art kind of is kind of his thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well the essay on art was really interesting, right? Cause you know, he's known for like self-reliance and like, you know, these big bold pronouncements and just other stuff, but the one on art I found really fascinating and um, you know, I'm, I'm going to butcher, I mean, he's so quotable, but I, I don't have not committed most of the stuff to head, but in general, the idea is that, when you see like this amazing piece of art, right? Like, you know, whether it's from, you know, ancient Greek times, or, you know, you see the, you know, Michelangelo's David, or you see the Sistine, you know, Capella Sistina, right? Or you see whatever, whatever is like a great play or, or you know, a great performance. Um, uh, I wish I could phrase it like Emerson, because he said it so well, but he was just like, you get the sense as the observer that you're, you're looking straight into like some, something, you know, everlasting, right? Some, some kind of like, something that you can't lay your hands on, which is why I think you call the creative process mysterious. Right. And Emerson, by the way, had completely thrown away. I mean, this is in the 1800s. He had thrown away his, he had been raised as a, you know, as almost like a, I think he was like a, a preacher or something, but then he had thrown all that away and he'd become very different, I think in his beliefs, but he was talking about like kind of that, that, you know, that something internal in their soul that you, you feel. And, and I gotta say, I feel that right. Like, you know, the first time I was in Florence and I saw Michelangelo's David, it's, it was just like, incredible. And it's funny because he wrote in the 1800s, but he still said, you know, you go to Europe, I'm paraphrasing Emerson, right? But you know, it was like 200 years ago, but he's like, you go to Europe and you see these amazing things, right? Paintings, the model, whatever. And it's so, it's so in such stark contrast to the mob that is around them. He used the word mob, right? Yeah. So he's like talking about like mobs and museums and stuff, right? It's like, you're seeing these eternal objects, right? And, and, and yet it's so against like the surrounding of it, right? Cause you have these mobs, like, I mean, today they're taking Instagram photos, but back then I'm sure they were mobbing in a different way. And I was just like, man, nothing's changed in 200 years, right? Like what he said could have been written yesterday in the New York times. He just read it 200 years ago and it's just as relevant. But I mean, the point is why is creativity such a mysterious process? Because sometimes even the people who create it, the create, and oftentimes the creators themselves 
don't even know what it is that they're doing. Right. It's almost like they're channeling something that is outside of them. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's true of the best art. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it extends honestly, even beyond creative process because there, I mean, mm -hmm. so I, I, I should, I keep bringing up like AI and stuff on this podcast. This is not an AI podcast, but I keep bringing yeah. it up because we keep finding kind of relevant, uh, uh, kind of conversations for it and it's certainly relevant yeah. in today's context but um mm -hmm. one of the things that fascinates me is the prog the rate of change you know the progress that we see right and in, with mm -hmm. any technology i think it's fascinating to kind of study that you know we saw for example i mean vr being a great technology like it's it's had these waves right over time and every once in a while it shoots up and then, you know, maybe it plateaus, maybe it keeps going up, maybe it goes down. You know, there's all sorts of different ways it can go. But the way you measure the rate of progress is kind of arbitrary. Like there's no real, you know, concrete way to do it. But today mm -hmm. we kind of see that there's this enormous rate of change in, in the abilities of, you know, uh, uh, AI systems or, or really anything that's been trained to do some task and it's been trained on tons of data you know large language models transformers whatever you want to call it right um mm -hmm. but I, what i think is fascinating is that the real research that's going on inside of a lot of the communities around ai and and this uh, uh i'm going to give credit and, and maybe a shout out uh to stella from Eleuther ai uh mm -hmm. who is the uh, um i guess i don't know ceo the director of Eleuther ai uh which is a, a um a kind of online group of research science. I guess they're a, a real business now. So they're <laughs> a, a company that runs inside a Discord uh, that um, does research into AI. And she gave a talk and it was all about kind of like trying to understand the ways that AI learn, not really what the outcomes were. Like the outcomes were clear, like we're going up and to the right, right? But <laughs> like the way it learns is, is still totally a mystery uh, to some extent. And so yeah. she was talking about all these different methods of how, okay, let's say we introduce bias at some point. When does that bias become uh, irreversible with things like gender pronouns and uh, all sorts of uh, things that are highly relevant, right? Um, yeah. And they, and it, it was still such a, a big question mark. So it becomes clear to me, at least to some extent, that we're going to get to a point where, you know, this rate of change reaches some you know, some level that we might call uh, uh, general intelligence, whatever that is, whatever your definition, I, I don't claim to know what that is, right? <laughs> um, but we're going to get to that point and still have a very, have very little understanding of the fundamental thing that we're creating, right? Like we spent generations studying philosophy and, you know, talking about things like art and the creative process and architecture and technology and all these things. And then we're going to end up back in the same place, right? We're going to be able to recreate this thing and not really understand what it is that makes it work. Um, I think that's fascinating in, in the context of this conversation because you know we're talking about things like creative process and and how we develop ideas and and the technology we use to develop those ideas. And I, I think there's really still there, there's no right answer as to how, what, or why. You know, it's like we do it because we love doing it. You know the way we do it has changed but like overall we still under don't really understand what it is that kind of like makes all this happen and i, I find that fascinating completely agree you're doing a lot of cool stuff with ai eugene do you want to talk about any of that sure i'm happy to yeah 
Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, maybe to build on on some of that. I mean, I, I'm no AI expert. I'll I'll say uh, right off the bat, right. So it's just a tool that I another tool that you see and. Um, uh, you know, and it's eminently, eminently usable, right? I mean, there's just amazing stuff. Um, and we're lucky to be, you know, covered in an article recently because, you know, we I just put put together stuff from chat GPT and then use tools like DID and 11 labs and um, some other things. I mean, there, there's so many amazing AI companies. So it's like, I could, you know, you could you spend a long time talking about amazing stuff, but I think the broader question is true in that, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, lucky to be in Silicon Valley and talking to people who run AI companies or data scientists. It's just like, there's a lot of stuff we don't understand, but it is generating some impressive results as we can see. And it really does come into question. I think the bigger question is going to be like, what is, what, what does that mean for the human experience? Right. Um, I mean, if AGI does happen, right. Well, hopefully we don't all perish from, you know, from, from some bad version of AGI. Right. Uh, there's that great paper clips game. Speaking of games, I don't know if you've seen, um, uh, paper clips, but, uh, it's like the, and it, it's like, you're, you're basically the AI and you, you know, like, it's like, the, there's like a, there's another example of that called the strawberry field thing, right? Like if you, what was it like the AI thing is AI wants to create strawberry fields. So it makes the entire world a strawberry field, right. And kills everything in it, but the entire world is a strawberry field because that's what it's optimized for. So those are all like um, heuristics to say, who knows if we're going to do this right, right? <laughs> I think that's still actually a big open question. You know, is the entire world going to, universe going to become paper clips, right? Which is like, spoiler alert, like, you know, for that game. But um, the, yeah, I, I think, I think if we're, if we're lucky to get beyond that, uh, and in fact, that isn't the great filter, the whole Fermi paradox of like, you know, is a great filter ahead of us or behind us, I think is the big question with the Fermi paradox you know, hopefully it's behind us. Right. So that means we're going to grow and evolve and become a multi-galactic species. So if we do that, then AGI becomes an amazing tool, right? It becomes like, you know, hopefully it gets to the point where, you know, we have, you know, figure figures a way to get infinite energy and all these, and then we can now, you know, a lot of people talked about this, Thorsten Babelin talked about the theory of the leisure class, right? Like, you know, conspicuous consumption and all that, or, you know, I mean, Karl Marx dreamed of, um, you know, I mean, the whole idea of communism and socialism was like people are free to do what they want and self-actualize, right? So I think that's like the positive view of AI, right? I think I think like hopefully that happens. I don't think the jury is out on any of this stuff, right? Maybe we all end up in, in the strawberry field, but hopefully if not, and we can use this tool and harness it well, then um yeah, hopefully, hopefully all those dreams of, you know, you know, Frederick Engels and Karl Marx and you know, and yeah, everyone, all these world religions, we can finally have like the time to go do that because, you know, we're, we're in a post-scarcity society, you know, a la Star Trek or something. Right. So I'm hoping for that future. Yeah. I'll make sure, I'll make sure we'll cut out the part where you say Karl Marx's ideas should be, uh, no, no, I'm just, messing. <laughs> um, no, I think, no, I mean, I, I, I mean, this, <laughs> this may be, this may be controversial. I, mean, no, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a virulent capitalist, unfortunately, which is not, not very popular right now, but, um, no, I think Karl Marx is very interesting, right? Cause I think his fundamental observation is to me, correct. His fundamental observation was that modern industrial society alienates the human being from the means of production, right? I mean, that's his fundamental insight, which is like, you know, back in the day, we used to like farm our own food over now we're just working in factories, making widgets and we feel alienated <laughs> and that was hundreds of years ago, but I think he's right. Like, I think yeah. we're even more alienated now as a society. And I think Karl Marx has only proven to be more and more correct. Now, I think his, I personally think his, his uh, idea for the solution, which was, you know, yeah, this... it's always the solution where you get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I think, I mean, personally for me, I think that's where he gets into trouble, but I think Karl Marx is absolutely right in, in his observation. And 
I, I'm, I'm willing to debate that or hold myself to it. <laughs> and be popular. And, and, and it's just, this is right. Like modern society does alienate us. Right. I and mean, we're stuck yeah. here. I mean, we're not sitting here in a, in a room. We're stuck here looking at a screen. Right. I mean, how alienating is that? I mean, I'm, I'm very happy to talk to both of you and it's a great <laughs> conversation. Uh, so, and I'm grateful for that, but, and I'm grateful that we have the tools to do that, but it's not like this is like a human thing to do. Right. Like right. I'm staring at a screen right now, looking at both of you. And that's not very human. So I, I'm I'm really excited about things that bring us back to human, like things being more human. And I'm hoping AI can be a tool that allows us to do that eventually. But I think there's a lot of a lot of things we got to figure out to get there. Eugene, do you think virtual reality helps at all with people feeling more connected, or does that still feel pretty alienating to you? You know, I think there is out on that. I mean, there are a lot of people like, you know, that um, I keep talking about, this is like the third podcast where I talked about, you know, <laughs> we met in virtual reality, that yeah. HBO, that's a documentary that became HBO. Um, Joe hunting. I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I know there are people who say that, that they couldn't have gone through COVID through without like, you know, VR cat and social VR. And I'm glad that that exists. Um, you know, I think VR is amazing, right? I mean, I, I love virtual reality and I think it's an amazing tool. I don't know. I still think jury's out. I know that it can be helpful for people, right? I mean, it can be proven. People have said that it's helpful. And I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful when I hear people say that they love their stories and help, you know, uh, help them see some, something new. As an overall technology, I, I, I don't know because it's kind of an extension of you know, a lot of things that are, that are just trending in digital and video games and stuff. And, you know, I like video games, right? I'm a big video game fan, but... Um, I, I don't know if they make humans better, right? Like, I don't know if these phones we have make us, you know, better at, at life overall. I mean, that's a much bigger question, but, um, you know, I always say when people say, you know, horrible things about VR, they're like, oh, but VR can be so bad and people are stuck. And I'm always like, the, the line is, and I think it's true, is like, well, you know, any tool humans make can be bad, right? Like fire, you can cook a meal, that's good. You can burn down a house, that's bad, right? So it's how you use it. But I, I'm just worried that humans are not responsible enough to use a tool as powerful as VR for good, which it can be, right? I mean, VR absolutely can be used for good and it has. Um, but, you know, you know the, the sort of dystopian things that people complain about VR, I mean, frankly, as a VR enthusiast, I, I do still worry about, right, for, yeah. for broader society. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of course. I, I mean, you, you were telling stories about early Oculus, you know, uh, we, we all know where, where, you know, <laughs> where that yeah. ended up for, for some folks, but, um, you know, mm -hmm. I think there's all sorts of crazy ways to spin that. I mean, mm -hmm. ready player one continues to be relevant, you know, for everyone, yeah. uh, you know, ready player two. I, I don't know if you got, it, it wasn't like, I'm going to be honest. It was <laughs> not that good ready player two. And I think, I was a little disappointed, <laughs> but uh, it continues mm -hmm. to be relevant in the sense that like there are more stories or, or and my understanding, Eugene, and, and you can confirm this was that Ready Player One was a required reading, right, for for Oculus employees for a while. Is that true? Well, I don't know if it's required reading, but I do. I mean, my bookcase behind me, I do have the the we all got copies of Ready Player One. I don't think they, yeah. they didn't force to read it. <laughs> there wasn't a copies. quiz. <laughs> but I think we were all happy to read it, right? Like if we hadn't read it before. I mean, I think I'd read Snow Crash before. And, you know, our two biggest conference rooms was the Metaverse and the Oasis, right? I mean, those were literally, yeah. you know, back in, you know, back in the days, 10 years ago, when no one knew what, knew what those things were, right? And those weren't buzzwords, you know, and every VC's pitch, you know, every VC's like inbox, you know, those were just like VR nerds coming around. Um, yeah. But they did give us, they were nice enough to give us, you know, copies of these books. And uh, if we hadn't read them already, but it was not... I would say it was not like required. Yeah, reading, yeah, yeah. I'd say. Wait, so so Snow Crash was yeah. also one of the books that they gave you. 
No, they only get it's us already player one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. Read, yeah. I already read Snow. That would have been so. some major forecast or you know uh, foreshadowing if if like the metaverse was uh, uh, mm-hmm. was that uh, ingrained, right? Well, yeah. I, I think mm-hmm. I mean Palmer used to say even like way back in the day, like see you in the metaverse. So like yeah. I think it's something yeah. people have been talking about for a very long time. It just became this more like markety buzzword in the past couple of years. But it's I think it's been you know endemic to the virtual reality community for for quite a while now. Yeah, it's only just blown up in the last you know year or so when when Meta decided to change its name. But yeah, we are actually Penrose's first tweet. I was I was happy to pull this up. Two thousand April two thousand fifteen. The first tweet from you know Penrose Studio, at Penrose Studios, if you go all the way back, if you doom scroll, is um, is about the metaverse, right? So, really? quaint old 2015, yeah. I remember when metaverse got popular. You know, like I showed that to you know some of our supporters, and I was just like, yeah, I mean, nothing new for us, but I'm glad I'm glad the world's slowly waking up to all this stuff, and uh, I, I think that's a good thing, right? I'm not parading that around saying, oh, we did great. It was just more that I was glad. Like that first tweet was supposed to be very obscure, and no one's supposed to understand it. Yeah. And <laughs> people could understand it right so anyway i think a yeah, lot of us no felt that way with that yeah, <laughs> yeah so alex I, I i mean we're rounding up on a, a pretty lengthy <laughs> podcast as is because this conversation has been so great we've really kind of explored some some depths we did not expect to i would say uh, um alex will save your game review oh sure yeah for those fine. listening in or watching if you want to hear alex talk about psvr 2 and what was the game you with uh, horizon were? call of the mountain yeah yeah <laughs> tune in for next episode so we can chat about that i i got to rant about hogwarts legacy i'm good you know i, <laughs> I can go to sleep now um but i'd really love to kind of wrap up the the podcast uh eugene just getting a kind of a, a future forward take on mm-hmm. like w- what does the future look like to you you know it just open question <laughs> Uh, what does yeah. it look like to you and, and what are you excited about? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm excited. I'd say relevant to this conversation. I'm excited about a lot of things, but, uh, you know, personally and, and professionally, but I'd say relevant to this. Um, I think some of the, some of the tools that are coming out in artificial intelligence and, um, you know, some of the game engines, I think you combine some of those together, just everything, right. You just fit. And I think, uh, what is it? Uh, you know, I think Alex talked about an embarrassment of riches, right. Of just all the things that are going to be available. And I think that's, what it's going to do, I mean, all these things is hard to predict. I think we're going to have a lot of unintended consequences, but I think overall, um, there's going to be so many things that we we can't even begin to understand, like how the world's going to change, right? I think there's going to be massive disruptions across everything. I mean, ChatGPT right now, you know, I, from what I hear, everyone in Hollywood, for example, talking about storytelling is like figuring out how is this going to impact our business, right? You know what I mean? Like as a writer, as a director, as an artist, like I think about it, I think it's a good, I think it's an awesome tool to use, but it undoubtedly will cause gigantic disruption. So I think we're going to see, um, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the world. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy things happening, but as it relates to technology, I think we're going to see some, you know, incredible things happen, unexpected things happen. I think it's going to be a gigantic disruption for some of the biggest players in the world. And I think, I don't think any of I think very few people see the freight train that's coming. I think people feel now that there's some kind of freight train somewhere, but they have no idea <laughs> what rail it's on or whether it's a flying freight train or it's going to coming down from Mars or whether from it's a movie freight screen. Train. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. The nature of it, I think, is very undefined. And I certainly don't have a crystal ball, but I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to be alive to be able to see what's going to happen. Very cool. Really exciting. Uh, Eugene, where can people find you? And also, are there any things coming up that you want to plug? 
Yeah. I mean, you can find me on at EYC, um, on, on Twitter. I mean, though I'm not very active, but, uh, you know, I've been, been on there a long time, a long time lurker, I guess, but, uh, um, I'm kidding. I don't even use, use it that much. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, it's, uh, um, yeah, we, we've got a lot of cool stuff. I'm excited to share. I'm excited to have this convo and, uh, yeah, I can't wait to see what, uh, what kinds of things we're going to do, uh, in the coming months, the coming year, it's going to be great. Are, are there any events that you know you'll be at if someone actually wants that very special FaceTime with you? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think I'm slated to be in maybe, um, anyway, I, in places around the world. So yeah, I might be in Europe. I might be, no, I will definitely be in Europe in the coming times, but where exactly, I don't know yet. GDC, maybe. I think I'm excited. GDC is kind of, you know, I mean, the bigger thing I'd say just overall, not talking about the events I'm going to be at is I'm excited. The events are going to be, are back, right? Yeah. Sundance yep. after years was back, right? It was, it was like a three years out, um, had, had not been, it was, it was like three years since we had been to an in-person and it's just so great. And I, I love that we can do that. Like, so I'm excited about things like GDC, not necessarily GDC, but you know, I think it's going to be great. I, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see people's faces again, people excited to be doing things in person. It's going to be awesome. Well, last year was my very first GDC and I was totally overwhelmed by it. And everyone's like, it's yeah. kind of empty. Like there's really no one here. And I was like, oh, there's so much going on. So it is nice to have those kinds of events where everyone, these communities can come together and there can be all these gatherings of people and exciting things. Um, quick shout out to remind everyone, I will be at South by Southwest. Um, I'll also be at the Poly WebXR Awards um, in New York City this coming Sunday. So I hope to see some of our listeners and cool people within all these incredible fields that we're discussing today to to, uh, to chat in some quality FaceTime with. Uh, Jacob, are you going to be anywhere soon? Uh, well, GDC, as we said. Um, besides that, I got I got work to do, man. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to uh, also, um, I had a few shout outs earlier on and we're going to link those hopefully in our description. Do you guys have any shout outs to other people you want to uh, uh, mention on the podcast here real quick? So yeah, Eugene, typically we end every episode by just giving a cool like, hey, someone made this cool thing in Unreal Engine, but I want you to feel free to like shout out anything, a game, a book, a movie, anything where you're like, more people should know about this cool thing. Well, I think a lot of people know about this, but Dwarf Fortress is amazing. <laughs> and finally, you can see it. I mean, I used to play Dwarf Fortress with the ASCII characters. And I mean, I, it was very hard to play, but now that there's graphics, I mean, it's still very basic. But yeah, Dwarf Fortress is awesome. So like, I'm so pumped about that. I mean, it's just such a good game. Like, and the funny thing is that the creator is like, it's so complex of a game that he's like, 10 years from now, I might be able to tack it, tackle ships, boats in 10 years. <laughs> like, so, so anyway, I don't know. I don't know if you guys played that, but it's, you know, my wife and I are both actually kind of getting into it. It's, it's pretty cool. cool. I've heard a lot about it and you, you just became the tipping point. It's like, okay, fine. I'll go take a look. Sounds great. <laughs> Yeah. It's more accessible than ever now, now that there's actual graphics, <laughs> not, not just ASCII characters. Yeah, man. Um, Jacob, any, any additional shout outs from you? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Um, very, um, yeah, just very excited about, I, I keep seeing all sorts of cool stuff, um, about, um, VR and like stable diffusion. Also, there's all sorts of cool stuff people are making. Get out there, you know, yeah. like, uh, Alex, you, you were, uh, are you your podcast, uh, with Epic? Is that upcoming or did that happen? Oh, that happened. That was on Friday. Yeah. It wasn't okay. a podcast. So, uh, unreal engine has their inside unreal right, right, um, right, right. live stream they do every week. So yeah, Victor Broden and I hung out for, uh, 
almost two hours and like 50 minutes or something and just chatted about uh, virtual reality development in Unreal Engine. Tina was an awesome host who mostly just sat there going like, cool guys, you guys are such geeks. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And I hope anyone who checks that out learns a lot about um, things you can do in Unreal Engine now. And I think Victor and I gave some nice teases of some of the things that are coming up. Uh, the XR Creative Framework is already live in 5.2. My phone just said that it's overheated, so I'm frozen. That's really funny. Nice. Um, I've never had that happen before with this particular phone, an actual overheated phone. So I'm just gonna be a, a pulsing blob for a second, but yes, everyone do please check that out. Um, also, there will be an exciting Unreal Engine related announcement at the WebXR Poly Awards. You might be able to guess what that will be um, on Sunday. <laughs> so keep an eye out for that. Um, and my quick shout out for the evening as I continue to pulse as a little blob is uh, my kids. My kids did an awesome job developing um, a, a racing game in Unreal Engine this weekend. And I've got a couple of Twitter posts about it that we'll link to. And I really want to turn this into a little video that's like, hey, parents who might not even know much about Unreal Engine, here's a great little like 20 minute thing you could do with your kids that just introduces them to the wide world of, of Unreal Engine and all the magical things it can do. Cool. All right. Well, thank you everyone for uh, listening, watching, uh, whatever or wherever you're uh, uh, um, tuning in. Um, we, we really appreciate it. Catch us on the next episode. We got lots more to talk about. Big thanks to Eugene again for, for coming on the podcast. We had, had an amazing conversation um, and we, we can't wait for you guys to hear this and uh, we'll catch you soon. Yeah. And a reminder, most of the Penrose stuff is available for purchase and download across, you know, Steam and Oculus and all these cool places. So yeah. if you have uh, not actually gotten to try these experiences out, in some cases, you don't even need a VR headset, um, go check it out. It's beautiful, beautiful storytelling. And really, uh, Eugene is at the forefront of this emerging medium, and we should all be cheering him on as much as possible. There you go. All right. Thanks for the kind words. <laughs> it was awesome being on. Thank you, guys. Right. Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful night. Take care. All right.